What's up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackball. Over the past two weeks, I have binge-watched the Jeffrey Dahmer movie, or the series, I guess you would say, on Netflix. Um, when, I'm going to preface this for a second, because when... when uh, I don't know if you guys remember The Doors, that movie with Val Kilmer. And one of my catchphrases for years after that was, Val Kilmer looks more like Jim Morrison than Jim Morrison does. I just thought the performance was really good. I felt the same way about the performance of, I forget his name, Evan Peters, I think his name is, uh, the actor that depicted Jeffrey Dahmer. And I gotta tell you, it it was one of the more kind of creepy performances because I thought he did it so well. I didn't look at a lot of footage of Jeffrey Dahmer and the way that he spoke and his inflections and things like that before I watched the movie. And maybe that's a mistake of mine, but I still thought the performance was great. One of the key things as a journalist is when I was younger, especially, there was a, there's a culture inside journalism, especially when you're starting out. You want to be the person, the first out of the gate. You want to be the journalist with the scoop. You want to be the journalist that breaks the story. And my guest today is the journalist that broke the story um, way back, I believe, in 1991 of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. And her name is Annie Schwartz. And she joins us now on Blackball. Annie, how are you? Ah, oh, James, thank you for having me. I appreciate that you that you did a little research before you watched the uh before you watched the the Netflix piece. You know, you, I'm sure we're gonna chat about it, but you know, there's another one that just launched today, which is the one I was involved in. And you get to hear Dahmer speak in his own words about his crimes. I didn't actually see that. Um, but you, you did you actually have a chance to speak with him directly? I have spoken to Dahmer in the past before he was killed in prison in 94. And, you know, I, I would love for it to, you know, be like Manson where, you know, he was the crazy looking guy with the swastika carved in his head and he absolutely looks like a, a mass murderer. Uh, Dahmer wasn't like that. He had uh, very little intonation, very little, very little, uh, you know, inflection in his voice at all. He's very vanilla. And when you hear him in this latest Netflix uh uh, series called Conversations with a Killer, the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes. Uh, you'll hear him talk about his. Uh, you'll talk, hear him talk about his. Uh, uh, you know his killings, in completely nonplussed. I mean that to me is what is what freaks me out. I think more than anything else is I've spent so much time with this information. I spent thirty one years talking about this mm. case, um, and there's very little that really makes me go wow. That's really something. But yeah. this was definitely something like that. Hearing him, you know, and then almost apologize for, you know, well, I should just tell you, this is going to be gross, but, and you're just thinking, oh my gosh, it's, it's an eye opener to be sure. No, I bet it is. Um, 
and I also want to get to your book as well. And we're going to, we're going to get to all that. Um, your book is called Monster, the true story of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. Before we get into that though, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, the film that just came out. I did notice that on an earlier interview, you did say that um, Ryan Murphy uh, did, you know, he took creative license with a bunch of stuff, um, you know, and, and one of the things, there's a few things that stick out and I want to cover them um, one at a time. The first thing that I want to, I want to ask you about is, when I was, I guess I was 15 or 16 when the Jeffrey Dahmer story broke, the story that you broke. Um, first, I want to know, when you, when they say you broke the story, you were the first person that the police gave information to? How did you break the story? No. First of all, you were 15. Thank you for making me feel like I'm 215, James. Listen, I, I'm, I'm 46, but if I continue at this rate, I'm going to look like Voldemort in like three well, days. So. Talking about this guy, I'm afraid that I'm going to look more like Miss Jane Pittman than Annie Schwartz. But, uh, yeah. you know, the when, when we, in journalism, when you say we broke the story, it means we were the first outlet to tell people what had happened. I suppose in today's vernacular, whenever I go and speak at universities or things, I always get young people that'll say, you know, dude, did you, did you so you like tweeted first? And, you know, I suppose that would be breaking the story today. You know, you'll see Adam Schechter will break stuff on, on ESPN uh, and he'll be the first one to put the information out. That's really what, what I consider breaking the, breaking the story. So okay. I was the first, uh, the first person to do that. I was the only reporter on the scene for hours. Uh, and I was the only reporter that had actually been in the apartment. Um, it wasn't like a grand tour. It was I stepped in the apartment because I was there so early when this was all happening. Um, yeah, it, it is one of those things in journalism that makes you say, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm proud of the work. But then you remember that there are 17 victims and, you know, you, you always have to consider that when you're talking about the case. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, how, uh, so it was obviously the first serial killer story that you had covered. What was, what, what was the, what was the city like? Why, when the story was breaking, like what were the residents feeling collectively? Because I often think about, I mean, well, Milwaukee's not the biggest city in the world. Like, you know, it, it probably feels like one of those cities in the United States. And there's a few cities like this that feels like a small town, even though it's a city. So there must have been some sort of connectivity among the residents there in their collective sort of grief, outrage, or or at least fascination with the case. And can, can you give me an idea of what the culture was like uh, surrounding the case at that time? Absolutely. You know, that is, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy when people ask that question because that matters. And the reason that that matters is because this is the Midwest, a city of about 600,000 people in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, when being gay was for many people, for most people, I'm going to say, uh, was a very closeted life. Uh, there were people that, uh, uh, that really had to, felt they had to live two lives. You know, there was the person they were at work, and then they were the person that they were when they were out socializing in the community. So that was the that really was the the setup. We're a very conservative town, uh, and you know the uh, it, it was the Midwest in the what can I say in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, I think what struck us so much about Dahmer was that there was such a this can't possibly be happening here kind of a feeling. Yeah. It, and, you know, I, it, Toronto had its own case, um, the MacArthur serial killer. And and I know that the gay community there 
uh, were were kind of outraged because the police um, they seem to drop the ball. Now I, I've heard you on an interview. Um, you you don't want to be too quick to throw the police under the bus, and I, and I understand why. The creative license um, that Ryan Murphy took when he made with the the, the Dahmer series on Netflix. Um, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to disparage this man, but I felt that because we're living in the times that we're living, he put a lot of the focus on bad cops and the and the racial element. And the racial element, I can I can understand. Um, but the bad cop thing, you 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 take some issue with that because it's not as cut and dry, and they weren't as bumbling. Like they looked like they were from Mayberry. Like they were so bumbling, right? Like so. Well, that's the way it was portrayed in the movie. And I mm -hmm. take issue just with that kind of, of portrayal, that they were, you know, bumbling and answering this call. Uh, I don't see that. I don't see that that way at all. Um, what I see is people who want to use what we know now, how woke we are, if I can use that awful, you know, expression, how woke we are in 2022 to judge something that happened back in 1991 and earlier. And I don't think it's fair to do that. That's called that presentism, by the way. I think Bill Maher oh. just coined the term present presentism. Someone, yes, someone did tell me this. I, I have to be cool now in future interviews and use the word, but I have to study up so I don't sound like I, you know, I just learned it from, you know, I'm today years old when I learned it, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the you know, the 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 issue with talking about what did the police do and looking at and examining at what the police did that night when they had uh, uh, Connor X sent us some phone and they returned him to Jeffrey Dahmer. I've spent a lot of years examining that particular incident, interviewing people. And I don't just mean talking to the two officers. I mean, I spent time talking to the ambulance crew that was there, the neighbors that were there that didn't step forward and say anything. You know, the, the, the deal with Dahmer, James, he was a he was a master manipulator. He's a killer. He's a murderer. Yeah. He is a a, a a guy who was so good at what he did that he went undetected from 1978 until 1991. I mean, yeah. he was he was good at blending. So when these two officers are standing there, they're talking to a guy who's saying everything that appears to be the right thing. He is hysterical. He's saying, "Look, you know, this is my boyfriend." Uh, come, you know, and they asked if they could go up to the apartment. A lot of cops wouldn't have done that. So they went up to the apartment. What did they see in the apartment? They see Conorex synthesis phones closed, folded neatly at the edge of the sofa. They see Polaroid pictures that Dahmer has taken of Conorak in uh, very sexualized kind of poses. Uh, and Dahmer says, you know, we were just kind of doing some photos and and Conorak because now, again, we Dahmer's telling them he's drunk. But the reason he's not verbal is he already has a hole drilled in his head, and he is. Did they not uh, see the hole in his head? No, tiny, tiny little little drill. Dahmer was oh, experimenting okay. with trying to with trying to uh, mummify his uh, uh, his victims. He's trying right. to figure out how he could keep people with him so that they wouldn't ask anything from him. So that was yeah. part of the that was part of the issue. So and and Conorak isn't really speaking. But he's also not trying to run away. He's and, not trying to, you know, signal to the police, like, get me out of here. But he was he was drugged at the time and they and Dahmer yes. said he was drunk. Is that yes. right? Mm -hmm. Did did the um I, I thought a brilliant performance in, in, in that series was uh 
sorry, everything I do, by the way, on Blackballed is from memory. <laughs> I don't use notes because they I find them distracting. But I believe her name is Niecy Nash. Yes. Her performance, while amazing, I, I just want to know how accurate her role was. Because they, they depicted a neighbor of Dahmer who could smell basically the dead bodies, who could hear him use his power tools, who could see people or hear people screaming and running from the apartment. And despite the brilliant performance from Niecy Nash, how accurate is that as far as the portrayal of what her role was as the neighbor of Jeffrey Dahmer? Well, it's inaccurate completely. Uh, it's not what happened. But remember, Ryan Murphy made a movie. He didn't make a documentary and he never said he did. So if he wants to re retell the, the, the story any way he wants to, he gets to do that. What I'm saying is this is a... Um, uh, what was happening that you know that night was was very very different than what is portrayed in the movie. The first five minutes of the movie shows Niecy Nash as this character, Glenda Cleveland, knocking on Dahmer's door, having a conversation. He offers her a sandwich. None of those things ever happened. I'm not aware that the two of them ever met because oh. she did not live next door to Jeffrey Dahmer. She lived in the apartment building across the alley from Dahmer's apartment building. And I don't think they ever had a conversation. You know, as, as much as I understand the creative license, and by the way, we have a viewer here that seems to be a big fan. Um, hello, Miss Ann. This is a dream to hear you speak. Thank you. She's a documentary junkie. Um, oh. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Leanne. Um, but the, you know, the, the creative license that people take, I, I find it, I find it annoying when I find out in hindsight how much of a license they took. Yeah, you feel kind of cheated, right? Pardon me? Kind of feel cheated, right? A little bit, be, be, not not just because um, it didn't happen the way that they said, but they used her as her character as a launch pad to to delve into the racial component of the Jeffrey Dahmer killings. Now, I understand um, that in reality, whether or not it was reported like this or not, and honestly. I don't remember. Um, 31 years ago, I, I, I don't recall being a 15-year-old that was really into details of news reports, but I don't recall the Jesse Jackson part of this. I don't recall there being a big swelling up of racial um, mm -hmm. tension because of this. I would understand if that happened because he did target a very vulnerable community. We're talking like right during the AIDS crisis, right? Um, Magic Johnson oh, yeah. was just about to be announced that he had HIV you know, um, and, and if you're black and if you're gay uh, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, you're probably not you're like you're a marginalized demographic. Absolutely. So to, ta to target that demographic uh, as a serial killer, mm -hmm. obviously, there's a motive there that says this would be easier than targeting uh, Johnny White from the suburbs. Right. Like this is just easier. Right, but, but, you know, what we, what we can't forget, James, is that. Um, I have to remember this is a podcast and when it's like sitting at the at the bar where I say, hey, wait a minute, though. No, please do it. Do it. Do it. This is I want my podcast to feel like a bar. I do. <laughs> um, you know, he didn't he wasn't attracted to Johnny White guy. And, and, right. and it wasn't you know, that is the that's the whole issue right there. Dahmer wasn't getting rid of a population that he didn't think should exist. Hmm. He was very attracted to African-Americans and to Hispanics and to the to the, the Hmong population. He was he was attracted to men that looked a certain way, that had a certain build. He did, you know, it's quite the opposite. It wasn't that he hated people who were black. 
that was his preference. Those were the men that he was attracted to. The, the racial piece of this happens when people go back and say that if Dahmer had been Black and had some of the same experiences, some of the same interactions in court, maybe even the interaction with the police, and had been Black, that would have been different, that he was more easily believed because he was white. I mean, I'm telling you that that's the argument that I'm hearing, but I don't buy it. Well, there's Wayne Williams, right, out of Atlanta. Exactly. It, yeah. it just doesn't, it, it just doesn't, that argument doesn't hold water for me. Um, again, the, the book, uh, the book came out this month, right? The book is called Monster, the True Story of the Jeffrey Dahmer Murders. Uh, the book actually came out at the end of, uh, the end of last year. Uh, oh, it came sorry. out in October of last year. This is and, why I should, uh, this is why I need to get used to notes, Annie. No, oh, that's all right. That's okay. <laughs> I, if you want to call it a new release, I'll be all excited. That's all right. Well, is it? Um, do you, are you experiencing a renaissance of uh, of sales because of the movies? Well, of course. I mean, you know, I wrote this book in '91 when there was, you know, I mean, now there's Kindle. There's, you know, I, I recorded the audio book so that people mm -hmm. can listen to the book read by the author since it's told in the first person because right, okay. it's the story of my my path covering this story over the years. So. You know, but I think we're also experience, experiencing a surge in this interest in true crime podcasts. Mm -hmm. Look what yeah. just came out of, I mean, the podcast serial started with one case. And yeah. that case has now made international news. And uh, it created an entire genre mm -hmm. at the same time. And so I see that. And I I think that I'm also, there is a, there's a, a younger, there's a younger audience now that has an opportunity to be exposed to the Dahmer case that didn't know anything about it uh, before. And now there is an opportunity to talk about it again. I, I just, my, my concern, and again, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't fault Ryan Murphy for making a movie. He, he wanted to make a movie. But if people who don't know anything about the case are watching that movie as, a, as, as their, their Bible for how this case went, that's just not true. And, yeah. and that's the, the part that's tough for me because the book that I wrote takes you from the night that I got the call and the tip call to go to the apartment to see what, what was in there. I so, think it would have been a really um, good idea to, to I, you know, it would be interesting. I mean, look, the movie's out. I actually thought the series was really interesting and entertaining to watch. I did get annoyed with the creative license stuff at the end of it. Like, I don't blame him for making a movie, but... And I, I, I hesitate to use this word, but I'm just going to use it. Listen, Reimer, I liked your movie. I thought it was cheap, the, 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 the whole, uh, because it seems like most of the creative license was centered around present day social issues in order to prop up that part of the story. And that's what I found a little cheap from it. But, you know, uh, but nonetheless, uh, that's just, that's why I would give it an eight out of 10 instead of a nine and a half out of 10 or something, but it was still not a great exactly, series. You know? Not exactly an easy story to tell James, you know, no, I mean, I, not I, an easy story to, to, to depict. I mean, there have been many depictions of the story over the years. There have been uh, the, the documentary by Joe Berlinger is the first um, uh, feature kind of film that I've ever participated in when it comes to Dahmer. I've done interviews for other things, but I never wanted to be part of something that would be that would be embarrassing to me or make me feel like I uh, somehow uh, got away from the journalist part 
of of my of my work and got into the the entertainment part of the work you know and the joe berlinger um documentary conversations with a killer the jeffrey dahmer tapes um one of the reasons why it was um i was really excited to have you on today because it's premiering today i yeah. believe yeah mm -hmm. on netflix so we, that's a little bit of a coup for us um you uh i i i, I did my any deep dive and i oh, noticed dear. yeah no it's okay it was a good deep dive. <laughs> <laughs> it's, good, it's a good one but um one thing that stood out because i i've, I've created a document I, i've produced a documentary uh before and it's not an easy task um and it wasn't the kind of documentary that this is but one thing that i really appreciated that you saying was that berlinger really um stayed with your research as a as almost like a, a barometer for accuracy as a way that's my words not yours but 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 you really respected that he he utilized your research in a way that was accurate he involved you in the film he understood that since you were there and you reported on it that you provided an invaluable piece of that documentary how was the experience working with him and 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 am i and am i uh, communicating that level of respect that you have for him in a correct way Oh, absolutely. I'll, I, you know, in my life and in my line of work, I don't get to work with a lot of people in the in the entertainment entertainment industry. Certainly not somebody of the caliber of director, of, you know, of Joe Berlinger for anything. Uh, and what I loved about working with his team was the fact that they really were so committed from that very from the very first meeting we had together. Uh, they were committed to is this factual. Okay, well, you say you have this document. Well, where did that document come from? Can we definitely track where it came from? Uh, they, they were very concerned at making sure they weren't using any information that, uh, you know, that, that was made up. They wanted to make sure that there was no dramatization here. So it is, uh, it really, it, working with them was a, was a pleasure. It, it, it can, listen, sometimes people that make, that make these, these, you know, serial killer films, you just don't know what you're going to get. Um, and he did a, he really did a, he did a documentary. I mean, it comes, it comes off like a film. The backdrop to the documentary is hearing Dahmer's own words in these tapes uh, that Wendy Patricus was able to, uh, to get. And along with some, some other people that, uh, uh, that the team worked with, uh, you know, so you're able to, you hear us talking about our interactions with him but then you also hear him. And this is a first, this is never, I've never seen this. Uh, I've never seen any kind of a production that's been put together like this. This is what he did with the Ted Bundy tapes and mm -hmm. what he did with the AC tapes. So uh, I was really, I was very impressed at their efforts to say, let's make sure that we're staying true to what actually happened. Very when you- in this thing too. I mean, there's not, you know, they're not reenacting tons of yeah. stuff I mean, uh, you know that's it, it's pretty much the you're hearing us tell our part and then you hear from Dahmer's own mouth what happened why do you think we are so fascinated with serial killers boy you know i victor schwartz my dear departed father would love to know the answer to that as well i think because he was hoping for something a little different after yeah. all the really expensive education spent on the right. child um, but uh, you know what? I, I think that because it's it's the same reason you can't drive down the highway when there's a wreck on the side of the road because everybody's stopping to look and see if they can see something. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that we're just fascinated by it. I think we also, 
you know, this tends to happen in places where people say exactly what I did up at the, the top of our conversation, which is it's Milwaukee, it's the Midwest, nothing happens here. And, you know, little did we know that, that we were going to join the ranks of a lot of other really, you know, uh, cities that, that people may not have heard a lot about until something awful happened there, like Uvalde. No one knew where Uvalde, Texas was, you know, uh, how long yeah. ago. Uh, you know, Kenosha, Wisconsin, when we had riots after, uh, you know, after, after George Floyd and then after a very high-profile shooting here. I mean, these are, I think that people are fascinated at the idea that they, they don't think it can happen where they were, but getting to have that throw seat to it is just, is, is fascinating. Yeah, and a lot of serial killers have, um, you know, made their mark or whatever you want to call it in in small towns. Uh, I'm just looking right now because I forgot his name, so I had to look it up. But Ed Gein. Oh yeah, no another Plain, another Plainfield, Wisconsin. Yeah. Even the name of his town has the word plain in it. Plainville. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Plainfield. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's just it's 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 crazy um, because you know. It, these 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 smaller cities where you know it's it's very leave it to beaver until it's not yeah uh, but remember the fbi estimates that at any one time there are over 50 at least 50 serial killers operating in this country so wow really sure i mean you know living lives of quiet desperation i suppose right active serial killers you check yeah, me on that because uh, check me on that and make sure. But when back when I wrote the book, they were mm. estimating that was the estimate then. I can only imagine that it's even larger now. Do you think that um, like I watched? Uh, I think it's called is it called Mind Hunter? That where where they talked yeah. about they profiled the people who invented profiling. Yes. Mm-hmm. Was there <clears throat> was there in. Uh, I don't recall this point, so so I'm sorry if 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 it's a sort of Captain Obvious moment for me. But it, it was there? Um, did they know that there was a serial killer on the loose before they arrested Jeffrey Dahmer? No, and and a lot of that goes to how Dahmer chose his victims. Jeffrey Dahmer, in his confession, said he deliberately chose people who he thought would not be missed. We're not saying those people didn't matter. We're saying Jeffrey Dahmer thought those people would not be missed. And what that means is he's having a conversation with somebody at the bar and he says, what was it like, you know, when you came out to your family? Oh, my family was great. Terrific. We're very close. We love each other. That person was not going to be a victim of Jeffrey Dahmer. He chose people who he felt were, were estranged from their families who were very lost like he was. So that was, you know, he chose people who were really under the, under the radar in in society to begin with uh also you know he's he was preying on the gay community mm-hmm. you have to remember that that you know if you were gay in milwaukee in the late 80s early 90s you may not even want to report a crime that happens to you to the mm-hmm. police because you are living such a quiet life an unassuming life yeah and um i liked how the upbringing of Dahmer was sort of left inconclusive in the series in a way like that. I mean, the, the, the audience was left with this idea that it, it could have been 
um, a combination of the mom uh, being mm -hmm. a little bit crazy and, and kind of a prescription pill addict. And it could have been contribution of the dad who I'm leaning towards, who allowed his son to like dissect roadkill um, because he, you know, but I don't know how accurate that is either. It, it, I, I remember hearing about that. So I think that that's fairly well, accurate. It, it actually is true. I mean, and that's, you know, I mean, to me, that's something we in the investigative parlance call a clue. But I mean, the yeah. fact that the kid is, is he was saving roadkill. So Dahmer wasn't killing and torturing animals, which can be common with some serial killers. Right. Dahmer saved roadkill, brought it home. Dad's a chemist and he shows him how to skin the animals, make right. pelts, that kind of thing. I'm, you know, look, I, you know, I'm, I was raised like, you know, Eloise at the plaza. So I'm not the guy to ask about whether or not, you know, it's okay. What does that mean? <laughs> Did you wear white gloves on Sundays? What does that mean? I said, well, you know, I mean, there's a little princess thing kind of happening there. Um, and, uh, I've completely disavowed my husband of that image. He's just like, I don't even believe that. But, uh, <laughs> but no, you know, it, it, it is, um, I think that there's there's a role to play on both sides of that family. But, but James, think about how many people, you know, <clears throat> grow up hunting with their fathers and they gut the deer and they do all this. And then you've got other kids who are born to mothers that are on psychotropic drugs when they're pregnant. And these people don't end up becoming serial killers. This yeah. guy did. So, you know, while these could have been factors, Dahmer was really mad about that. You know, he was so mad. He was mad at me because your life isn't weird enough until a serial killer is like, mad at you. Uh, yeah, really. Dahmer was upset with me because he didn't like that in the book. I talked about the fact that so many psychiatrists, so many forensic psychologists believe that the way that he was raised by his mother and his father contributed contributed it's not the only reason but certainly contributed to the crimes that he later committed and Dahmer reached out to me and and called me and said from prison before he was murdered in 94 and said when you're out talking about this book people are going to ask if you talk to me so you can say yes and tell everybody that I said I'm the only person responsible for what I did not my mom and dad not anybody else and that was it we're just strangest phone call of my life but yeah, uh you know it was but, but it was i mean how weird is that that he had such a um you know a a, a soul or some kind of feeling about his parents yet the things he did to human beings were unspeakable yeah, but we have an, we have a tendency as human beings to just view people as all or nothing, right? Like so, if he if, if Dahmer is going to kill what was it, seventeen people? Yes, seventeen um, men and boys. Mm -hmm. Seventeen men and boys eat some of them, store their body parts, all that kind of stuff. That doesn't mean that he's not capable of loving his dad. I know that sounds yeah. weird, almost no, like no, a juxtaposition. No, no. I, right? When we're in this, when we're talking in this area. We say a lot of things that are kind of, you know, are the things that you wouldn't normally say in a conversation, right? Yeah. But uh, but no, it, it doesn't mean that he can't uh, he can't love his father. But it's just odd that all of that is contained in the same person, right? It's just yeah. It's very well, I, I I know how that feels like. I'm not. I mean, I'm not. I don't know how that feels like. But I know how it feels to not be a murderer. But you know. Um, fantasize about my stepmother possibly getting murdered. You know, like I, I know what it's like. 
<laughs> to, to, to deal with the yin and yang of the mind, just not to that degree, right? Like that is, um, but, but yeah, the, the, I mean, we're talking about a perfect storm, a perfect psychological storm of how you're brought up, what your disposition is biologically, what your disposition is psycho- psychologically, mm-hmm. how the different ingredients of mom and dad and how you're treated at school and how you're treated by society just creates something. And most of the time it's benign. And this time it wasn't. Well, remember that this is a kid who is, you know, in his, in his early teens, knows he's gay, can't come out to father because dad is a super duper Christian guy. And he is just tortured. He's got these feelings about, uh, about death uh, or about, about possessing someone. He's drinking to excess. So he's, you know, going to high school drunk. Um, I mean, where in this, you know, where in this scenario does someone say, hey, the Dahmer kid seems a little off. But then what happens <laughs> after that? And I don't know. I, I just full disclosure, I dropped acid on my first day of high school. So I could have easily been, you know, told that I was some sort of weird guy too. And they would have been right, but mm-hmm. I never went, took it to the point that. All right. I went to divine be... savior, holy angels, James. Oh, I'm That's sorry. I'm, Jesus. <laughs> All girls Catholic high school. There it is. I mean, they, they, they still don't really like, I, they have me back for career day, but they're always really nervous. They're like, are you going to talk about the, you know, the book? And I thought, well, no, I, you know, I, I, am I going to talk about crocheting? I think not. So. <laughs> So your dad, though, wasn't happy that you uh, you ended up pivoting from a crime reporter to a serial killer expert? Well, no, of course not. He just he thought I was writing about something really awful. He's in an awful case. He, right. he knew that I had written the book. He died shortly after the book came out. Uh, he lived long enough to see to see you know his his baby girl write a book. Um, but yeah. yeah, he just thought it was. He's like, I don't understand why you write about that. And I said, Well, I apologize for the fact that it's not Proust. I do. Um, but you know, it's, it's, I was a journalist and it was the story that found me. I mean, you know, it was the story that found me. It wasn't, it wasn't, I was so interested in serial murder and, you know, it's very funny, James, to this day, people still, when they see another serial murder case somewhere, they'll say, Ooh, are you going to go and, you know, write a book about that case? And I always say, no, you know, I was, this was something. It's a one-off for you. Yeah. I mean, this was a. This was a case that I was involved in from the moment that it was discovered. Mm-hmm. And while I find other serial killer cases interesting, because as part of my research, I've learned a lot about serial killers. Uh, I've contributed to a number of, of uh, you know, uh, academic volumes on serial killers, whatever information I had from Dahmer. But uh, no, I mean, I, you know, I would, I'd rather watch The Real Housewives than, you know... <laughs> I would. Um, we have a question um, from Leanne Schaefer. Did he really drink blood? Hmm. I didn't know he was Catholic. You know, <laughs> uh, see, and then Schwartz was struck down by the Lord shortly after she did James. If, if it makes you feel any better, Anne, there's no Lord. So um, <laughs> um, you know what? I, I, I know about the cannibalism. I do not. I, 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 you know what? I really have to refresh my, isn't that crazy? I'd have to refresh my notes on that and, and read back my notes. He did consume parts of some of his victims. And the reason that he did that is he was trying to look for a way to keep them with him. I believe that he did at some point certainly taste blood because he wanted to know what that was like. So there was a curiosity there. 
but also he was how does he keep these people with him so he is with with one of his it's a podcast so i'm not sure how really nasty i'm supposed to go here but you can uh, be as 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 two live crew once said be as nasty as you want to be that's beautiful i I can't wait till you send me that on a sampler for the kitchen (laughs) i will Um, i think i have a person in fact in the chat who can make you like a crochet doily thing that you can hang on your wall that says that we're good all the other troubling things people have sent me to put on my wall uh, over the years but uh no i mean so Dahmer was there was one victim that Dahmer was very attracted to because he really worked out a lot he had very attractive biceps very well-developed arms and when Dahmer killed him, he said, I, he was, I loved his biceps so much that I wanted to see what they would be like. And so that was what drove him. I mean, I, you know, I, uh, I, I remember somebody had said to me, they said, well, you know, Dahmer was a cannibal, right? And I said, well, you need everybody. And I thought, oh God, Annie, shut up. That was a terrible answer ever <laughs> because he didn't. But, but he was searching for a way to make people uh, a part of him that wouldn't leave. And cannibalism was a manifestation of that. That almost sounds p- too poetic to be true. Like it almost sounds, it, it, it sounds like a cover story for, I just really, I'm just, I'm a really evil, gross person. But but do you think it's truthful? I don't have, I, I, you know, here's another thing that I'm sure is going to sound just a little bit nuts. I don't, I don't take, I don't doubt things that Jeffrey Dahmer said in his confession and in his conversations with the shrinks, because for heaven's sakes, he had nothing to gain or lose by it. He's already in. Um, and, and he, I, I, I do think that he was interested in being studied, but he was such a manipulator that there's That's no what I mean, telling yeah. what kinds of things he said to people to see what kind of a rise he could get out of them. So. And if Tony Soprano taught us anything, it's that, um, uh, sociopaths will utilize talk therapy as a way to make themselves the object of pity or the object of interest rather than the object of scorn. Mm-hmm. That's what I learned from the Sopranos. <laughs> also, yeah. Also a serial killer. I've often wondered, I, I know, I understand the difference, I think, but what would you call, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but I just thought of it. So I'm going to ask you. A person that kills um, a, a serial killer is often described as a person who kills three or more people, and there's usually some sort of like um, trophies that they keep and all this kind of stuff. What would you call like a mafia hitman? Like what? What? Like you know, a guy that's got like dozens and dozens and dozens of kills under his belt, and they never get plopped into the serial killer pile. I'm just wondering know, why you think that. Is. I guess that's a mass, is murder. That a mass murder. I don't. You know, I don't know. Or just Vinny doing his job, right? Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> Never have I had to talk about the Sopranos during an I'm interview. My husband's going to be so mad he missed this. He's going to. Oh, to right. Is he? Day. Is he there? He can join you on the couch. Oh, big enough. <laughs> um, are you excited to do with this life? I, you know, imagine bringing yeah, so, me. So you married. <laughs> that means you married your dad in a way, right? True. <laughs> They're on the same page. Um, oh God! I, hope, I just had the, the worst idea that my daughter would marry someone like me. Jesus. I hope she's not whoever she marries. I hope the woman is not like me. I'm just going to leave it at that because I want my daughter to be gay. <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you this. Um, no. Okay. The documentary that comes out tonight, you've seen it. I'm assuming you were able to screen it before it came mm-hmm. out. How, I know. Is it- Joe, Joe didn't let any of us see it. Uh, oh, really? I saw it this morning. 
the minute I got up, I went on Netflix so I could watch it because I wanted to see, you know, if I. And what did you think? What did you think? Let's hear it. I was really impressed by it. Uh, The way that he folded the storytelling um, of all of us who were involved in the case, along with, he weaved that in with uh, Dahmer's own words talking about the, what he had done. I thought it was masterful. I, I really did. I thought it was m- masterful because it told the story in a way that, that, I mean, listen, this is not a, this is not a fun story to tell to begin with, right? This is not, you know, suitable for the whole family. Right. But the way that he, that he told it, it it's, I, I like the way that he kind of makes us each a character in the story. Uh, you know, Wendy was the attorney. She's just out of law school. It's her first job. And she ends up, you know, having to go to the safety building to talk to the serial killer. I'm a young reporter. I'm covering the weekend cop speed. You know, I end up at this at this apartment building covering what was going to be the biggest story of my career that would go global. Um, you know, you have district attorneys and cops and detectives and, you know, medical examiners and all kinds of people who who come at this story from their specific direction. And I think people will find that interesting. Jerry Boyle was almost like a father figure to him, his attorney. Uh, and Jerry is interviewed in, in this series. And, you know, it's it's weird because the longer you, you talk to Jerry about it and he's, yeah, you know, Jeff was like this and that, and you keep forgetting he's talking about Jeffrey Dahmer, serial killer. Yeah. Uh, because if anybody... Jerry Boyle probably spent the most amount of time with Dahmer and got to know him uh, as he prepared his, his insanity defense. Yeah, that was it. That was also something I found interesting in the movie, um, in the series was the, uh, he didn't feel like he was insane. And it made me think to myself about, it actually made me ponder the idea of what it's, what evil is. Right. And, and if evil is something that um, that people who are evil, like Jeffrey Dahmer, if if evil is insanity or if it isn't insanity and it's difficult to traverse those waters, it seems like a very subjective idea. Uh, well, I just want to know what your thoughts are. Hard for Pardon the me? jury to figure out. I mean, the jury was, you know, your first inclination when you hear about the crimes of Jeffrey Dahmer is to say that guy's crazy. Right? Of course he's insane. But then when you start to understand the, the, the different requirements for being considered legally insane, and then you think about all the ways he went to avoid detection, all the things he did so that nobody would know what he had done. You're, Can you give me an example of those? Because in the movie, they made it seem like he was really sloppy. Everyone could smell well, the bodies. The end. I mean, so the thing is, is that toward the end, he really accelerated his killing and they there's a theory that they kind of want to, they want to get caught toward the end uh, because they just can't, they can't take living this way anymore. Um, but no, Dahmer was not sloppy initially. Uh, initially, he, uh, he would bring his victims back to wherever he was living. Uh, he would drug them. He would kill them. Uh, he would dismember them. And then he would keep whatever trophies and then he would dispose of the rest of them. The problem with the last uh, six victims, uh, five victims, I believe, is that he was just killing so quickly that the bodies were quite literally piling up. In in, in that, it, did, was that a depiction correct? Like he would just toss them in the garbage behind the building? 
I'm no, not that I'm aware of. No, it's not. Okay. It's not accurate. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he he did put put some of the the remains in garbage bags and got rid of them that way. Um, but uh, you know, again, you're you're watching a, a very dramatic depiction of this. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's metaphorical. Does it really matter if you know somebody's in a hefty bag or you know you just tossed them in the the garbage? I mean, of course not. But well, it says something about our sanitation services, right? Like they, they they smell so many bad things that they can't decipher what they're smelling. Maybe you know, it just seems it seems well, lazy almost. It, you know, here's the so here's the thing. You know, Donna moved into a neighborhood where he kind of just blended in. It was people who minded their own business. Nobody really bothered bothered you. Few people in the building knew him as that weird white guy, um, but he purposely chose a place where if you're in a building that smells bad, it's not weird. A very challenged part of the city, uh, low income part of the city. Sometimes people are using the elevator and the toilet and the stairwell interchangeably. I mean, it's not, you know, it's when I say we can't judge 91 by 2022, the same goes for, we can't judge, well, my God, I can't believe this happened to a 14-year-old. I mean, I think about my 14-year-old. It's like, well, you can't do that because it's this is, this is not you know, we're talking about different, you know, we're talking apples and oranges. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Um, When you were a young reporter, because uh, I, I was... I've been a freelance journalist for a long time. I don't know what I am anymore because I, I enjoy being a podcast guy and 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 I write articles still, but I, I, I don't know if I consider myself a journalist anymore because I have such a respect for the craft that I know that if you are a journalist, then you're you're doing a lot of things that I'm not doing right now. So I would say I used to be a journalist. Um, and I can imagine how competitive it must have been at that time for a lot of different stories, but I'm not sure that would be the case for this particular one. And I just wanted to know what it was like. How old were you? And and were you a crime beat reporter or? Oh yeah, was I was give, give me the lay of the land here. I was the I had the most unenviable job in the newsroom. I was the weekend cops reporter. So oh, I, was, I thought Friday, I was going to say editor. Sunday, oh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, four p.m. to midnight. I was I went to crime scenes. I did ride-alongs. I did all that stuff. I loved it. I loved it, and I always I still believe that it's the best beat in the newsroom. And I also believe that like every reporter ought to have to cover, you know, cops for, a, 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 you know, a month or cover city hall for a month or at least, you know, figure that stuff out because those are the stories where, where that involve real people and real human emotion. 
but I, you know, I, I was, everybody wanted that story. Are you kidding? Everybody wanted a piece of that story. It yeah. was, it was the big story. Um, but, you know, there wasn't going to be a lot of exclusive, you know, information. Everybody was pretty much going to get the same thing. Um, the, the big part of it was really being the first to report it and then also being the first to report that Jeffrey Dahmer had had contact with the police uh, just before he had uh, killed one of his victims. What is the difference between Jeffrey Dahmer in 1978 when he was at his grandma's versus Jeffrey Dahmer of 1991? What, what is the main, what, like, like, take me through the evolution of that serial killer. <laughs> If you could. Well, Jeffrey Dahmer in, in 1978 has just graduated from high school. He's living in Bath, Ohio, and he is having lots and lots of fantasies about uh, uh, getting a jogger, finding somebody that he could take back home with him. He wants to possess someone. That was his big fantasy. So he was trying to figure out a way that he could maybe make that happen. So that's who he is in 1978. He's confused. He's frightened. Uh, he becomes over the years much more calculated. So he doesn't kill again until he gets to Milwaukee um, when he lives with his grandma after dad you know, decides he can't live in the house in Bath, Ohio anymore. So he starts to bring people home uh, when he's living with his grandma who looked, I mean, she doesn't know exactly what's happening there. There are some people that don't believe that they, they ever told her what actually happened. Um, but she knew that Jeffrey was was seeing men and bringing them home, and she did not approve of that. Mm -hmm. Catholic, so again. That's who yeah. he that's who he is. What happens is, as you know, as as time is now going on, he is becoming more and more excited at the idea that he seems to be accomplishing the thing that he wanted which was to, was to possess someone, to have someone that would stay with you always, that would not ask anything of you, uh, that would not, um, you know, uh, be any trouble to you. So that was always what he was pursuing. Toward the end, he was drilling very small holes in the heads of his, in the skulls of his victims while they were alive and pouring muriatic acid inside to see if he could turn them into, into mummies. He had one victim that walked around two days like that before he died. Did he ever comment on, um, on any, in any of these conversations, did he ever comment on whether or not he cared or whether or not he got off on the pain that he inflicted? I don't... So I don't know that... I think that he took, yeah, it sounds weird talking this way. He, he, he took great pains to make sure that people did not feel pain. That's why he drugged them. Oh, okay. So he wanted them knocked out completely before he did anything. Uh, and that is, you know, that's how he gets caught at the very, very end. Tracy Edwards, who was going to be his last victim, comes back to the apartment with him uh, Donner gives him, uh, you know, gives him a, a drink that's, you know, that's laced with some of the sedative. He didn't have enough of the sedative in there. He's getting sloppy. Uh, that's how Donner gets caught is, is when he starts to just kind of be out of control as opposed to the controlled way that he was, that he was conducting these murders. That's the difference. That's the evolution. 
we have about 10 minutes left and uh, I, I would like to ask you a question. I'm not sure if you've been asked this question before. I talked to somebody else on this podcast, I don't know, about a month ago or so, and we were talking about prisons. And I am of the mind that this the, the prison warden and I guess to uh, a larger extent the state um, or, or if it's a federal prison, the nation, like they have a, a responsibility to make sure people don't get raped in prison, make sure people don't get killed in prison. I don't really understand the fanfare of cheering a murder, even if it's of a murderer. And I remember when, when Dahmer was killed, I remember that story coming out. And the first thought that came to my mind was like, did they allow this to happen on purpose? Like how, how, how is it possible that, that, like, why are people getting killed in prisons? I guess is my question. Like, I, I mean, it, it's it's a really big question. I understand that there's probably not enough time to to really delve into it, but I, I I think that you know if you can't protect the people that you're imprisoning, then what are you doing? You know, because yeah. You know, so I guess my question is about Dahmer's death in prison, mm-hmm. and 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 if and if there was any. Uh, any clues that would indicate that the, the prison kind of like turned away and kind of knew that, they, that he was going to be in danger. I guess. Oh, I think question. there was every indication that they, that they didn't, uh, that they turned away. I mean, I don't know that it was a great, a great plot and conspiracy because I'm not a huge fan of those to begin with. I, you know, I haven't seen, you know, I always love when people come up with these police conspiracies and I want to say, listen, you know, Four cops can't figure out how, where to go to lunch. So I'm, I'm never thinking that there's going to be a great conspiracy. That's not a ringing endorsement either, Annie. I, well, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Um, but you have the two most high-risk prisoners in Columbia Correctional Institution cleaning a bathroom. Christopher Scarver, who is crazy, is, you know, is also, you know, walking around, um, You've got all of these these bays in the um, you know in the guard station, and somehow you know this is this is this is allowed to happen. And no one was ever charged. There was a the full full on investigation. I interviewed people that were working at the prison. There were there was a lot of there was a there was a glaring question: How could this happen? Um, but we never answered it. Uh, only one guard was ever disciplined, and that was one who, uh, right after they figured out that Jeffrey Dahmer wasn't coming back, he ran to Jeffrey's cell and got his shaving kit and his toothbrush and put it on eBay. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. that happened. <laughs> that I, so I, ch- we're adding that to the list of stuff that I can't believe that, you know, happens. Um, Is- but but there was there was no, there was no proof. Um, Christopher Scarver, you know, says, you know, the... The devil made me do it or whatever. I mean, he's, you know, he's lives out in the supermax now and writes poetry and has a blog and, you know. Good for him. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. <laughs> can't make that stuff up. Um, no, you can't. But, uh, but yeah, so there was no one ever held accountable. But honestly, James, I don't think anybody cared. I mean, uh, there was not this great yeah. hue and cry for we must find out how Dahmer was killed. Yeah, and 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 I and I get that, I get that, but I mean, there, I don't know. I, I I think I like to think that like there, there are certain principles I think that a society should embrace, and one of them is that if you are deemed guilty of crimes, you should go to prison. I I'm still maybe I'm too idealistic because I still think that prisons maybe not for 
lifers or death row people, but like it still is technically supposed to be a place where you are rehabilitated or or something. You know, you can't rehabilitate Dahmer, but why don't you just stick him in? Not a necessarily like I, I guess it's torture to to stick someone in isolation for the rest of their lives. Well, he was but in some- isolation, James. So he was in isolation for. I think maybe the first uh, year or so that he was that he was there, mm-hmm. he knew he had told Jerry Boyle, his attorney. He said, "The minute they let me with the general population, you know I'm going to be dead." He knew it. Yeah, he oh, knew yeah. it. And so that was, you know, the, they they had him in isolation as long as as long as they could, and then eventually he's he's just he's another prisoner. Yeah, that's it. It, it seems like negligence or something, you know. I don't know. It seems like negligence to me. Um, but, you know, that's just me. <laughs> I, I know nothing about this stuff. Um, moving forward, uh, what, what is your job right now? I, it, it's got like 18 words, so I, I couldn't uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't remember it. But That's all it, right. I, uh, yeah. I actually own my own um, consulting firm. And uh-huh. uh, what I do is I work with, uh, enough, I work with law enforcement uh, uh-huh. and I work with uh, prosecutors. And I teach them how to build public information operations inside their agencies. So when there is a high profile incident that happens in a, in a community, uh, I may end up working with that agency to help them put that message out. Here's what we should say. Here's how we should say it. Here's how we follow up on it. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a communication strategist, I guess. is a There's a two word job title for it. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting pivot from being a journalist. I mean, you're already halfway really. there. As part. Still no? tell stories. I'm just helping somebody else tell a story. Yeah, I, yeah, I you're not- you know, post-George Floyd, law enforcement doesn't have the luxury anymore of saying, here's what happened, trust us. Because no, we're not believed anymore. And so what I think is, it, it, or for, for the most part, or for a large part, we're not, we're not believed right away. Um, but I think that when we look at, um, you know, when we, when we look at the fact that, uh, you know, you have to get out and tell people what happened when you have a police shooting or when you have a mass casualty incident or when, you know, look at what happens, you know, out in Las Vegas. Um, that's the most recent story that I can think of. And that's, you know, crazy town as well. But, but here's what I always watch when I watch those stories. How soon do they get the story out there? Who, how soon did they tell the, you know, the public what was happening? And how soon did they say, okay, you know what, we, it's one person that's responsible. And because eventually the blame game is coming. And it's, and it, it's, it's almost like, you know, five, four, three, two, when these things happen. Yeah. Uh, so... That's that really is. It's not a pivot. I was always a storyteller. And now I'm just trying to help law enforcement tell stories about what they're doing to educate people so that they don't get mad when people don't understand what they do. Would it be easier if every cop was mandated to have a body cam that never turned off when they were on duty? Body cam is not a panacea. It really isn't. A body cam is not a panacea because to me, uh, you know, you can have video. I've seen video of instances. I've seen video that had to be explained because what you see is not what you think you are seeing. You have right. to have it explained to you. And so, no, I don't, I don't think that the body camera piece is big. I think that, uh, I think de-escalation training is important. Um, I think that, that police officers really 
need to learn how to talk to people. And, yeah, you I know, it's, I mean, I, that's, that, that's a very basic kind of a, you know, kind of a bandaid, but that's kind of the place that I come from. Is there, so it's not a panacea, but I mean, is there, is there a, a crucial negative of body cams that I'm not know that, that I'm not looking at? No. It, so let's think about what it means to have a body camera. So you're a police, uh, a, let's think about the community you live in. Let's say you live in a community. Uh, I live in a forest, community. Annie. You live in a forest. So yeah. you have seven elves and then the chief elf that is, you know, taking care I'm of the chief of elf. You're family. looking at him. Yeah. <laughs> that is taking care of your family. Um, but what happens is when you are going, if you're going to record all of that, you have to store it. You have to keep it somewhere. You have to have some method of, of cataloging it. You have to be able to respond to open records requests for it. And so you have to be able to go back through it and figure out where is whatever piece somebody's asking for. So it's not just the videotaping itself. It's all the other stuff that comes on the back end, like the storage and the retention. And mm -hmm. the, you know, uh, how much is the city really going to pay for all of that data storage? Data storage is really expensive uh, when it comes to, to cities and their budgets. And I know nobody wants to hear that because it's so incredibly boring when you tuned in to hear about Jeffrey Dahmer. But, uh, but you know. Hey, hey, hey. We're about to wrap here. Let's let's wrap on a good note, Annie. No. Um well, listen, um, I, I think this is fascinating. I, I feel like I could talk. I would love to like maybe one day do it like a really serious chronological deep dive on your work um, in this case. Would you be willing to do that? Of course. Absolutely. Right. I'm really right. impressed with all the chats. I mean, I I, I, I didn't want to take too much time to look over there. But I mean, I, you've got a really active, uh, active uh, audience there. Yeah. And they make fun of each other for fangirling so hard because of how much they love you. Yeah. <laughs> I did see somebody say, you know, what in the world is wrong with you? You bought Dahmer's toiletries. See, this is the problem with not really listening to the. <laughs> no, no, they were talking to. They talked to each other. So oh, someone joked. Okay. Yeah, that's someone, that's someone joked about how they they were outbid by uh, oh, um, by God, somebody else. I officially sound like somebody's mom for saying that, man. No, you don't, listen. <laughs> you're probably someone's mom, and they're lucky I'm to not. have you. No, you're not. Okay. <laughs> but listen, the book is called Monster, the true story of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. And the documentary that features your work and yourself, I believe, is Conversations with a Killer, the Jeffrey Dahmer Tapes, premieres today on Netflix. I don't know if that premieres today on Netflix in the States versus Canada, because for some reason they do different scheduling. But um, most of my audience is in Canada. So uh, mm -hmm. we'll have to either wait for it to come out or maybe it's out already. Maybe someone in the chats can enlighten me whether or not it's come out today on Netflix. Um, but listen, it was a really, really interesting conversation. I'm so happy that uh, I contacted you to have you on. I really appreciate your time. And um, uh, thank you very much you. for joining us. I appreciate it. And, and thanks for having a, a way for people who are interested in this to, to be able to, to have a forum to hear more about it. Because if they just oh, absolutely. read the news or listen, wait for a podcast, they're not going to get the whole story. So. They're appreciate not, but I appreciate well. you coming. I, I had a really good time speaking with you, so hopefully we can do it again. I'll come back anytime. Awesome. Thank you. Annie Schwartz, uh, she is the author once again of Monster, the true story of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders, and she is featured in the documentary on Netflix, Conversations with a Killer, the Jeffrey Dahmer Tapes. We, uh, I, I have a surprise guest here um, that I wanted to bring on because I thought it was fitting. Um, and uh, 
you know, because because we just looked at it from the side of journalism of what it's like to deal with a serial killer case, what it's like to report on a serial killer case. I am envious as hell that uh, of Annie, uh, you know, what I would have it would have been a dream um, to to be able to work on a story like this when I especially when I was in my 20s. But what does it look like on the law side? So here to help us with that is Rob Kaviklian. Rob, I'm saying your name wrong again. Um, and I don't know why. Yeah, Kivlikin. Kivlikin. Kiv- Rob right Kivlikin. Um, I wanted yeah. to, to talk to you today. People know who you are. Um, you, you... As my office, I don't have like, my microphone. Yeah, and it's already annoying me. <laughs> yeah, I can't hear you, buddy. Like, I, you're breaking Seriously? up. Do you, have, do you have earbuds? I do, but they're not charged. Like you just said shit, but I didn't hear it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. What device is this? It's a Mac. Are Better? you in the Safari browser? I am. Get out of it. So it's Safari's the problem. Good. So, uh, yeah, come back in when you're done. Trust me. So, Rob, hopefully that his tech issues can work. Um, but yeah, no, Rob is on the show because. He has actually represented a serial killer, and I'll let him sort of expand on that a little bit because I don't know how much he's allowed to talk about it. Um, <clears throat> so I thought it would be interesting to have him on to sort of get that perspective, which is interesting because, you know, on the on the reporter end, you have to be unbiased. You just got to report the facts. You just got to, like, you know, uh, you, you can't use too much of any editorial flair when describing the suspect, all that kind of stuff. Um and when you're a lawyer, you have to, and you're a defense attorney, you have to defend sometimes really awful people. And I, I, I find both of those uh, interesting in how they overlap and sort of challenge us, uh, us meaning if you're a lawyer or a reporter, to maintain sort of objectivity or to maintain a level of professionalism and, and to not allow yourself and your emotions to sort of get the better of you. I'm going to see if Rob could work there. Hey, Rob. Hey, buddy. That is perfect. Yeah, Safari. I don't know what it is about Safari, Safari but it blows. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, so it's Friday night, and I've done a work. I've done a work week as a criminal defense lawyer, so I'm I'm gonna rap here. Um, are you gonna actually rap? Because no, no, not like I'm not gonna like spit hot rhymes. No. Um, Leave that shit to me. <laughs> um, as a lawyer, as a lawyer, <laughs> yeah, as a as a lawyer. I want to know what kind of like, do you have to sort of prep your smoking? <laughs> you're now, you're now the Ryan Lindley of the black ball. Podcast. No, we're, no, we're, we're like on like, you know, we're not on mainstream here. Like I can, I can hack darts. I get it. I'm just, I'm just playing. <laughs> <with you. clears throat> give me an idea of what it's like to represent. cover it. Like, give me, give me an idea of what it's like to represent someone who is, so, uh, a serial killer who's, who's so heinous and who's a sociopath and a psychopath and all of those things. I'm Rob Kiblikin. I'm a criminal defense lawyer by trade. Um, you know, and, and so I was, uh, when I was a very much junior with a, a top criminal defense firm in Toronto, I was on the defense team of Bruce MacArthur, um, who is one of the most prolific serial killers in Canadian history. And, um, my job on the on the file was to review disclosure and uh so basically to review the the police and the crown's evidence and 
and you know to to be a part of that first of all at such a young age as a defense lawyer also as like a young age as a person it it was um profound in its own way right like and and when you meet somebody and who is so clearly guilty i think we like mr macarthur pled out and and here's the fucked up thing i had a good relationship with the guy my yeah. job was to go into i want to delve into that like that is what I'm interested in. Like you, you're sitting at a table with somebody who you know what they did. How do how how do you go about being a professional and establishing a rapport that doesn't make you feel almost dirty? Well, on the one hand, like you're like you're you're a, a barrister and a solicitor in good standing with the Law Society of Ontario. So like you have those obligations. Mm-hmm. And, and so that overrides everything, right? Like you must go in there. It's like the sort of bedside manner that doctors talk about. You got to go in there. My lighting is fucking terrible. Just right? turn off the light in the kitchen. Yeah, seriously. Give, give me a hot minute. Yeah, you get a hot minute. Um, as you can see, <laughs> the technical difficulties only happen when someone who's normally on the show is on the show. Okay. That's better, Rob. That's yeah, better. It's okay. like crushing it, My forehead still looks very shiny, but fuck it. Yeah. Um, and it's an eight head. So yeah, no it, a five head. Don't be fucking cute. Where's um, your beard? Uh, I got rid of it. And so you can see my five chin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's that? What's that easy E line? That'll probably get me banned from YouTube. She had more chins. Marlon Brando when he was not hot. Um, you have more chins than a Chinese phone book. Anyways, yeah, no, like Marlon Brando, like in the score, you know him, like when yeah. it's like Marlon likes barbecue. Um, <laughs> that's what I look like. Anyway, so oh, thank you, DaCosta. His lighting is fine. You're a sweetheart. No, it isn't. Um, DaCosta, DaCosta doesn't know what the fuck he's talking. He's good at art, but not at lighting. Sorry, DaCosta. Well, one minute. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh shit. What are you doing? <laughs> the sounds do not make me very confident in what the fuck it is that you're doing. Stop saying oh. <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> oh, no, that's not working. What are you doing? I just, you were fine. Go back to, no, no. The way it was before you got up. And all the people listening right now that are listening on Spotify, I'm apologizing. Now take off the, the, the kitchen one. Rob, there you go. Now sit the fuck down and talk about the serial killer for Christ's sake. Yeah, right? yeah. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, so um like like at, at at first instance you're like I'm going in like and I'm a junior lawyer at the time. So I'm like mm. I'm just trying to hold it together. Like Yeah. I know what this person's done. I can you go over some of that so we can just I just cuz there might be some people that aren't familiar with Bruce MacArthur and his crimes. I don't know what you're allowed to tell me, but I want to know everything that you're allowed to tell me <laughs> like of his crimes. Maybe you can stick yeah. to the shit that was reported. I don't know. It's up to you. No, it's, a, you know, the, the whole stuff that like he staged the bodies, like he, you know, it was, it was, um, there were classic serial killer aspects to the case, such as trophies, certain serial killers. I think the FBI who are defunct put out, um, a list of uh, you know things that serial killers do, and and one of the five types of serial killers are people who collect trophies. 
Um, one of my favorite serial killers, which is super fucked up, the fact that I'm, I have a favorite serial killer, was a, a, a hitman for the Banano crime family who was known, well-known to have collected trophies from his victims. Um, Do you have to collect trophies to be a serial killer? Because I just spoke well, about that with, with, I just spoke about that with Annie, um, about how, and I used the, mo- can you stop interrupting me, Rob, please? Okay. Um, okay. Um, and, and, and how I, but I used the example of a mafia hitman. I'm like, why aren't they considered serial killers? And we talked about trophies and stuff. So yeah, go the ahead. The guy I'm talking about is a guy named Tony Karate. I don't know his, his formal last name, but he was an expert in, in martial arts, and he was a hitman for the Banano crime family, um, one, one of the five families in New York. And um, have you ever seen the movie Donnie Brasco? That involved the crew of the Banano crime family in New York. Listen, uh, my, my last name's is Fiore, and I just want to let my viewers know that there's no such thing as the mafia. Go on. Yeah, yeah. absolutely not. There's, the Cosa Nostra is not real. Um, it's a, Cosa what? Yeah, it's a figment of the FBI's imagination. Um, Rico, that's just a guy, you know. They did not have proof that J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover was gay. Uh, so anyway. Um, yeah. Don't be transphobic. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, um, you know, and, and so like, but there was a classic trophy collecting aspect to that case. And in, in particular with certain, and it was, this came out in court, images that he kept. Right. On his fucking hard drive. Like, and I'm, I'm sitting there going like, like. The are you defense, talking, sorry, are you talking about the mafia guy right now or Bruce? Bruce. Uh, and okay. like the defense of rough sex gone wrong went out the window quickly. Yeah. Um, like <laughs> pretty quickly. Mm. Um. And, you know, and so, like, there was that classic aspect of collecting trophies. And, and this, in my estimation or my analysis, would be uh, through the, the, the pictures and, and, and certain other articles that I'm not going to go into detail about because that, that did not come out in court. But, and, and, and you're sitting there with this guy and it's, you, you throw on your shirt and tie and jacket in the parking lot and you have a butt and you you know, cologne and you, you go in there. And I think part of it was that like, maybe I shouldn't say this, but like I was just his speed. I looked like every guy he killed. Oh, wow. Like, like I, like I look like every guy he killed. Wow. So, so, so did you use that as a way to maintain a good rapport in a sense? You know, I'm, I'm not going to comment there. That's what? I'll leave that to you. Oh, uh, you flirted a bit. Okay, I got it. It's fine. Like you know, it's okay, Rob. It's it's a safe space here, as we talk about serial killers that kept <laughs> body parts in potted plants, right? And I'm a sworn I'm a sworn officer of the courts. Cool. Uh, <laughs> no, no. But what what I was really trying to say is that like when when you're a lawyer in that position, um, establishing a rapport with your client is probably hugely important because you want them to trust you. Yes, and and it was going. It was very much going toward a plea. It was very much going toward that. Like one of the things with a serial killer is like many of them want to see their handiwork on a wall. They want to see what they've done. Yeah. You know, because it's in Canada, you're charged with murder one. So your sentence and people get this wrong all the time in Canada. If you convict, if you're convicted of murder, you're, you're sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole 
for 25 years. So, okay, let's let's break that down. You're sentenced to life in prison. First part. You're there for life. Second part, you get the possibility of parole at 25 years. Right. Okay. So that's so, why they have the Bernardo yeah. every five years or something. Bernardo will see the light of day again. Right. right. It's not like I like my old boss, Ted Royal, like knows the guy. And he's actually got a really, I've told you this story before, James. Mm-hmm. He's got a really interesting practice. He's out in Kingston. So he does a, a bit of cute sort of criminal defense work, like on the, on the initial level. But then he does a lot of the appellate and and um, parole board work in the area. And Kingston is sort of penitentiary century or center of Canada, right? Right. Because um, there's still Bath. There's still Collins Bay. Like it's, um, you know, was he scary? Uh, no. Yeah, sorry, that's a question from, sorry. We, we, I always have to keep in mind that there's people that are listening and not yeah. watching. But the question from one of our viewers is, uh, was he scary? Was was uh, Bruce MacArthur scary? Um, like you're like you go into the interview room and you're like locked in, and and in Toronto South Detention Center because which is where I saw him, it's like a it's an oblong table and it's like brushed metal, so it's about the table itself is is abnormally abnormally long, so it's about four feet long, like a Chippendale table. You know what that is. Well, I mean, like my days of dancing at Chippendales are over. Same with yours, uh, you know. Yeah, um, you don't. You don't even have a suitable mustache anymore. You know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every Chippendales dancer looked like uh, uh, Tom Selleck when I was a yeah. kid. You ever, you know, the gag cards that people would get, like you know, to give the, to, to their like sisters and stuff, or moms, whatever. Yeah, it was always like a Tom Selleck look like with a perm. Yeah. What the yeah. fuck was with perms in the eighties with men? Anyways, we're totally off track here. Um. Hey, firms in the 80s need to be discussed on this podcast, okay? Like, you know? that's, that's- Welcome to Blackball. We're going to talk about uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, Bruce MacArthur, and perms. Where did yeah. we go wrong? Yeah, It might it might lead to the epidemic of serial killers. Um, <laughs> that'd, be, uh, that'd be good. <laughs> now it's sociology. Anyway, um, so, like, you're sitting at the table, and it's, like, it's an abnormally long table between two people. You're sitting there, right. like... It's not a dinner table. It's about fucking two feet longer. Okay. And it's like brushed metal. The type that you can slide across quickly. Yeah, gotcha. And it's bolted and it's it's the, the width of the walls. So it's this long rectangular room. And the chair's bolted down. Um, Is he attached to it with cuffs and everything? No, no, no. No cuffs. No. I always insist. No cuffs. Because I, I want them to feel like they can, they're not, you know. You're establishing trust, right? Whoever I'm meeting with, I want them to feel like, and that went south on me once. I had a guy attack me in cells. He leaped across the table. Um, oh, wow. Didn't go well for him. Um, did not. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that part. Um, but there's, there's, so it's, and it's concrete. It's concrete. And then there's, a uh, there's a rectangular door rectangular door behind you and there's that kind of you know the if you went to a shit high school there's that type of uh mesh window in the door that you can't put your fist through right and so on both sides 
It's like razor wire almost. Yeah. Pretty much. Like you try to put your fist through that, you're going to break your hand. Yeah. Um, and so like, yeah, like he came in and, and like, so I always say no coughs, no coughs. Like just can we, pre- can, I'm going to cut you off there and break my own rule for a second. Cause I want to preamble this. This man was convicted of killing how many people? He had not been convicted. He. Oh, sorry, so but but eventually he was convicted of no. killing how many people? Uh, I believe eight. Eight. Okay. So I just wanted to like set the scene of what you're getting, what you're going into. You're walking into a room with a serial killer, who we eventually learned killed at least I eight knew people. He was a serial killer at the time. Right. Okay. Like, so that is I, that is the preamble I'm looking for because it establishes your sort of state of mind and what you're thinking when you're walking in. My job on the file was to review the evidence. Yeah. But this is this is one of the most high profile cases in Canadian history. This is you know big stuff. And and so I was told, don't fuck it up. Like mm-hmm. you're gonna meet with the guy, don't fuck it up. Yeah. And you know, I, I went in there and and um yeah, like it was we we had a very frank discussion. And, and where, where, was this, uh, was he always going to plead? Um, like you have a mission, right? Like when you go into a courtroom, when you go into a meeting like that, do you have a goal of trying to get a plea? Um, I had a goal in the meeting in which I cannot discuss. Um, okay. Given, given the weight of the evidence, because it, it's, this was not a who done it. You know, like I've had murder clients in the past where it's like a who done it, and you can there's a defense to be had, and I want to hear your story, and let's get your narrative as to what happened that evening, and 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 we'll take that and we'll compare that with the police evidence and the crown evidence, and we'll see what we can do. But given you know the the particular circumstances of that case, it, it was it, I can I can say it was moving toward a plea. Okay. And that, that, that was over my head at the time. I did not have that conversation. I was okay. just a junior. I'd just been called to the bar. Like, I, you know, I was just on the file to review and catalog the disclosure. Now, what, I, I'm trying to guess, like, if you were to climb into his, are you allowed to talk about stuff like, like wh- what you thought his mind was like, what you thought you know, his motivations were like, we were talking to that reporter. We were talking about Jeffrey Dahmer. He is a, a, your, your standard. Like I look at fucking, who's the guy from Facebook? Like the guy Zuckerberg. Yeah. Like if I went to a police sketch artist and said, draw me a fucking serial killer. Like that's what it would come out like. Like, like, (laughs) am I wrong? Like, well, uh, more of a he's more of a school shooter, I would say. With dead eyes, like yeah. that. Yeah, like, <laughs> that one takes it for me. <laughs> yeah, like the Sandy Hook shooter was that really gaunt looking weirdo. Yeah, you know? yeah, you're yeah. like holy shit. That yeah, that guy's about to kill people. Like, yeah. <laughs> if you're if you're like the mailman and you see that kid, I'm calling the cops. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. If you that's imagine that was your Dicky D guy, Jesus. You know, and for those who don't remember what Dickie D is, it's the little bike that you could sell ice creams out of that everyone who ever had that job sold weed out of. If you were one of those people, you were recently convicted. Please contact Kivlaw. Yeah, yeah, like 
or, or Kibla. Yeah. Uh, Joe <laughs> Biden will fucking pardon you if it's federal. Um, if you um, remember. Um, yeah. So I want to get, I want to get, okay, because we, we have to wrap soon because I think there's a show coming on, but I, I want to really get into like the darkness of the psychology of the person that you're sitting in front of as much as you can share so that this doesn't go from a podcast of really interesting serial killers to James and Rob shooting the shit while Rob smokes, you know, lick my fucking bag. Uh, <laughs> no, but, um, yeah, this is just like being up at, uh, Leanne's cottage. I see her keep commenting. <laughs> no, but like the point is, is, is uh, like I sat down there and I, I was well, like I'd seen or I'd seen, you know, the evidence there was no there was there was no you know i didn't do this like none of that going on and i was and i was still in a position at that time i was an adult male i was in my late 20s like you're not gonna play that game with me Mm -hmm. so we had a very frank discussion which i which i cannot um i i kind of love friday night rob jen waddell i'm sorry I'm, i'm watching the chat while we speak yeah, uh, it's really doing a lot for the continuity of the podcast content. Yeah. So please, yeah, yeah, yeah go thanks, ahead. Bob. Yeah, um, <laughs> no, but like I've, there was none of that with me. Like I went in there, I had a mission, I had, a, I had, I question to ask, um, I had certain questions to ask. I, I had, a, I had a task assigned to me as, as a mm-hmm. junior lawyer. Okay, I wasn't there to get his guts. Like I wasn't there to talk about the, you know, the meat of it. Right. Um, was there any, okay. If you, if you looked at the evidence and you had to look at all of it, does that leave, like, do you have a way of stopping any like uh, subsequent trauma that you may experience from recalling all of these details? Um, I don't know. Fucking, I see my shrink once every two weeks. Um, there's that part of it, but uh, but seriously, did, did it linger at all for you? For sure, it did. Yeah, like, and the work generally does. Like, I've had to review child pornography. That's oh, the worst. Stuff. Well, that was worse than that was worse than MacArthur. Yeah, like I've, I've had to look at images of children in a sexualized position, and I know you're you're like, and that's that's a an appropriate reaction, James. Yeah, like. That is no, dude. I I I I tried to write a story. I was gonna write, and and I might go back to it because I think I'm now that I'm sober. I don't. I, I think I might be able to handle it better. But there was, I, I wanted to to do a story about all of the slap on the wrist sentences for child rapists and things like that. And when I was reviewing just cases and just read, I would read the details of the crime, and then I would read a judge's. I won't rep. Re- and then I would read the judge's reasoning yeah. for giving them a, a light sentence. And I couldn't figure out how the yeah, two even matched. This, this is Canada and we have sentencing principles and sentencing guidelines. And those must be applied equally and fairly to everybody. So I get it. If, if a judge, you might not get it. Well, I don't think that, I don't think that a sentence, I don't think that a country has a good justice system when a person who's convicted of the unwanted sexual touching of a minor gets three years in jail we and have someone who committed tax fraud gets eight. That, that no, is not, you know, no, but we like big picture, James, and we can, we can delve into this further on another podcast, but we have a fantastic justice system in this country comparatively. Like I have a cousin who's a public defender in Oakland mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And they do mass arraignments down there, meaning they like an arraignment at a trial is James DeFiore on this on, you know, October 7th, on or about the day of October 7th, you did such and such. How do you plead? They will do that to 300 people at the same time. Yeah, obviously that's shitty. But 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 specifically, like, I know I know mandatory I know mandatory minimums are a big thing amongst lawyers. They don't like them. Uh, you know, I get that because it it, it takes away the nuance part. of certain crimes, right? It takes away the idea that like not all crimes are alike. But nonetheless, I think that a system might need repairing if a child rapist gets three or five years or whatever it is, and a person who commits tax fraud gets eight. I I, I just think that fundamentally something's broken there. That's all. I don't think that our entire justice system sucks because of it, but in that particular thing, there that is arena. something that is broken in our justice system for sure, but I would not talk about sentencing first. Right. Okay. Fair enough. You're, that's, you're, that's you're, all, for somebody that's on the front line, like I would not talk about sentencing first as, as to what's broken in our justice system. Okay. Fair enough. And would you talk about a third? You know, like because because I think that a lot of people, a lot of people who aren't experts, um, just to be fair to 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 you know people who feel like me, I understand that there is there's a lot of people that just seem to have a vigilante idea of what sentencing should be. There's a lot of people that think that if a person gets raped in prison, oh well, so what? I'm not that guy, right? But I I, I do. When I, when I was going to work on that story, I had to stop because I just got so fucking angry at what I was reading and then the sentences that they got that I was just like, I can't understand this, right? Like, this is beyond me. I don't understand why if someone rapes a child that they don't just fucking get life with the possibility of parole after 25 years. I don't understand that, you know? And, and, and part of me, James, does not understand that either. Mm -hmm. But intellectually, I've delved into sentencing principles in this country. And I understand mm -hmm. where the sentences come from. Okay. Yeah. Like it's not, it, it, a lot of like, I'll be standing next to a guy in court and be going like, are we fucking serious right here? Like, is this yeah. happening? Like a court of law says you did this and this is what you're getting. Like yeah. that's happened. And I've said this before on the podcast with Blundell, like, you know, I've got a guy off on charges and walked him out of the courtroom and gone like, we both fucking know what happened here, pal. Like really you're lucky you see in the light of, light of day right now. Yeah. That's the tough part about being a lawyer, I guess. Hey, eh? like it's a, Defense I mean the, the, the higher principle, it would be Defense an adherence. Lawyer. Pardon? Right. Defense lawyer. Right. Uh, but you know, the, the, this, the a higher principle of everyone deserves a defense. I could see that. I could see a defense lawyer wearing that as a cloak to protect them from what they must feel sometimes, which would be the guilt of knowing that the person that they just got off was probably guilty of something. That must be really oh, difficult to do. That's with. been like dozens of times. Yeah. Um, the the point is, is one, it's not my call. Mm -hmm. I'm not the arbiter of anyone's guilt or innocence. I am not. Right. There is a judge and or jury of their peers. That will make that call. That's not my call to make. My job in that moment is to defend them. Okay? Yeah. And, um, and on every defense available, and the law society says this, regardless of my otherwise delicate fucking sensibilities. Like. Yeah. 
It's funny. So, I didn't really, I didn't put this together until just this moment, but um, that both Jeffrey Dahmer and uh, Bruce MacArthur are gay serial killers. Yeah. Yeah. I did. They might like, be. The- and, and there's so much blame that went around with that case. Like the Toronto police service dropping the ball for years. Cause like, and I, I don't use this word. I don't, I never do. But if you were a cop at that point in time, like who cares less about a gay fag than a, a gay visible minority fag? I don't think you're allowed to say fag. Really? Yeah. Well, I don't, I shouldn't have just said it either. YouTube. By the way, I just just as a little aside, I won my last appeal with YouTube when they took down my content. Um, like, and this was just that, today. That, actually, that was the cops. That was the cops' mentality at the time. I get you. I get you. Right? But still, and, and it's, not, it's, I don't it's, that word. I find it abhorrent. I know, I, but it's reached N-word status, and you should just say the F-word or something. It has, I think, for a lot of people. And and you know what? I as a person not, who yeah, it's not N-word status on my end, but you're neither black or gay, so you don't really have a. I lived in the gay village though during while I was defending Bruce MacArthur, so I think that I lived in Parkdale. That doesn't mean shit. <laughs> Park, yeah, well, Parkdale is just okay. Let's buy crack cocaine, but um, like, <laughs> uh, twice, twice, uh, yeah. fifteen times. Yeah. yeah, no, but the point, the point, what I'm saying is that like that was the mentality of the Toronto Police Service at the time, right? And yeah. they did not care about visible minority gay men going missing. They couldn't give a shit if you're a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white girl. Oh fuck. Like they'd have been on your shit. Well, the, the Annie Schwartz, who wrote the book about Dahmer, actually said that the 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 movie, the, the Dahmer series, was actually an unfair depiction of of the police. She said that um, that it didn't go down the way that the movie depicted. It was a lot of creative license, and that um, and and that the movie kind of didn't do any justice to uh, to the case. Uh, Rob, you disappeared. There yeah, you no, I had to open up the window because I'm smoking. Oh, okay. Okay. Good job. You don't need to, you don't need to turn the camera off when you do that. It's okay. You can just, go. Um, but yeah, the, the, you know, the, 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 the police and the, and the MacArthur thing, I mean, uh, was there a ton of evidence against him um, for murder or was it the sexual assault stuff? Cause I know there was a guy that got away, right? Wasn't there a guy that got away? It was like, like, like I said, the defense of rough sex gone wrong went out the window in a hurry. Like, Right. But it but was, what I mean is before he got caught, before he got caught, wasn't there a complaint made against him by a guy that he was with that he took home? Not murder. Like, you're right. right. Sexual assault was was very much should have been on TPS's mind. And yeah. the detectives out of, I believe, it's 55 division, a couple of them got dismissed as a result of this. Um, hmm. There was there was some backlash because, like, the thing about it is, is the gay lobby in Toronto has some power. And I was living in the gay village while I was defending this guy. Oh, like, wow. I, I lived oh, at uh, Church of Maitland. Like, I lived at uh, Jarvis and Maitland in those two queen, uh, you know, those two burgundy buildings that are side by side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I lived in there. Little walk up, little walk yeah. up on Maitland. I uh, loved living in the gayborhood. Oh, dude, you know? it was great. Like, I'd go out and get hit on left, right, and center. And I'm not yeah, even me too. It was fucking too. brilliant. Like, yeah, I get my ass slapped when I'd be walking by. Remember the church in Wellesley Starbucks or whatever, the second cup or the Starbucks, oh, whatever that was, that was. That was like the pickup central. That was dude, you couldn't it was like 
a cockfight in so many different ways when you would when you would walk by there. And because yeah. I'm five six and like at the time I had a baby I'd face and shit. Called. I'd get catcalled. I'd be like, oh yeah. thanks for the tire pump. Um yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you'd feel good. Like I'd walk home from the subway at like Queen and uh, or sorry at, uh, at Wellesley, at, at Wellesley and Young, and I would walk home and I'd almost prepare myself for it. Like, okay, you're not gay, but you're gonna feel really good about yourself by the time you get to Maitland. Yeah, like, <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd be looking like a bag of dicks coming out of the office. Like, tile. they love bags of dicks. I'm just oh saying. yeah, no, but yeah. like all over the place and I, I'd be getting cat called and I'm like, I got to strut my step by the time I hit my block. Like, just like, right. <laughs> uh, if you joined us late, this hilarious show is about serial killers. Yeah. 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 Not gay, not gay guys hitting on straight guys. Not, not yeah. at all. Okay. So I want to, we have to go. So I want to pivot just quickly because I want to reestablish uh, something that we are going to be doing uh, in, in the near future. And it, it's, it's called heinous cases. And what we did was, is we took Christy Blatchford's book. What's the book called again? There it is. Yeah, Life Sentence. And it, it's it, four decades of court reporting or how I fell out of love with the criminal, the Canadian justice system in brackets, especially judges. And half of the cover is blacked out because she had some other shit to say that she couldn't publish. Oh, and so Christy Blatchford. Christy to go there and like when Christy couldn't publish something. It was fucking scandalous. Well, that's right. Um, Christy Blatchford, just to give some background, because I'm I'm really excited about this. I'm kind of glad we waited a little bit, too, because we both had stuff going on, but also it gave us a a more robust idea. So what we're doing is we're taking the chapters of Christy's book, and we're going to create a podcast. I'll be smoking the whole time on the podcast, by the way. Yes, that's fine. And we're going to – so we're going to take Christy Blatchford's book, and we're going to take each chapter, which is a different case. So she covers, like – um, she covers Paul Bernardo. She covers uh, Gianco Meschi. She covers. Did she cover Bruce MacArthur? I don't. I don't think so. No, she she wasn't alive for that, uh, or like not meaning. Like, yeah. She was not well. Um, like Batesh to Duffy, Abraha, yeah. Elliot, like Bernardo Gomeshi, etc. Like she she covers like touches on Milgard. Um, yeah. Like and some of the seminal case, and like these are guys that I came up with. Like I, I worked for the 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 successor to Pinkowski's, and he def, he defend he was involved in that. You know, like, right. like so. The, so now one of the reasons uh, I was friends with Christy Blatchford, I was her neighbor for about a decade. Uh, we saw each other all the time. She used to flirt uh, with me, and I used to make me blush um, because I she never, knew how. She knew how much I respected her, right? And one day I, I was like 27, I think, at the time. And I was like, and I was like, I was kind of being like on purposely cute. I was like, Christy, do you think like she was going to China to cover the Olympics? And I was like, um, do you need like I'm like, I'm like, you wouldn't happen to need like, you know, an awkward looking assistant or something to come with you to China? And she'd be like, first of all, you don't qualify. And she came up to me and she put her finger on my chin and went like this, because I she's telling me that I was cute, I guess, and not awkward looking. And then I was like, Okay, okay. And then as I walked away, all I felt was right on my ass. And I was just like, I love this woman. Yeah. <laughs> I love no, well, I met I met Christy. I was it was like my early days as I was working for the same firm, uh Royal and Partners, great, great firm in Toronto. If you're looking for a start in criminal defense, um, they do great work. Mm-hmm. Um 
and I was working and I was at old city hall. I had like a big list of clients that I had to speak to. And I was stressed out of my mind because about half, like a half a dozen judges tore a strip out of me. And I went, I, you know, not the first time. And I went outside. I was having last, a butt. Yeah, exactly. I know. Right. Um, I, went, I was having a butt and she comes up to me. She asked me for a light. Oh, and like I was trying to impress her. I'm like, did you do like, the with Zippo thing where you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I off my off my dress shirt pants, like just or off my dress pants. Like people don't understand how how her she had such a huge presence. Like she, she, she was, was tiny as fuck. Yeah. yeah, and and she like she was like six five. Yeah, like, exactly. And she would like and and her presence were like like could make people grown ass men just kind of melt a little bit like yeah. because of the respect that you had for her intellect for her, stri- for her straightforwardness you know what i mean like she would be I'm a, a big like, dude i'm like 61250 like i'm a big guy and like she just walked up to me and like you know you got a light and i i, I yes yes yeah and i knew for who you she was. yes anything like, would you like grapes and a fan yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> you know and and she was like, and, and I knew who she was. And, and then she, what do you read? And I, and I was like, well, <laughs> what do you fine. drive? I'm like, I, I'm like, I don't read this son. Like I was trying to impress her. I said the same thing to her, but I was in I, my twenties. Yeah. I was like trying to impress her. I was like, and I she was like, that. why not? I couldn't, I couldn't line a puppy cage with that, you know? And she was just like, Rob, you need to read everything. We had the exact same conversation, me and her, when I was like 26, 27, like the exact same conversation. I was, she was like, what do you read? I said everything. I was like, everything except for the sun. She's like, well, you're doing it wrong. And she was right. Because you need yeah. to know what, you know, different sides of, yeah. You need to know the, the idiot, like with the sun, right? I don't even know who they're writing to anymore, but whatever. <laughs> we'll talk about that for another fucking Every time I picture, every time someone says the Toronto Sun, I picture Rob. Uh, I picture um, Brian Lilly in a gag ball uh, every single time. <laughs> because, well, because I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, Karima and I work together on this thing. I call Karima up and I'm like, Karima, are you doing cartoons this week? She's like, Yeah. And I'm like, Can I give you an idea? She's like, Okay. And I'm like, Because you know how his uh, his girlfriend is, is, is you know how, you know, yeah, you know how his girlfriend is is Doug Ford's. His girlfriend is Doug Ford's uh, press secretary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, so yeah. I'm like, I'm like, okay, this is my idea. Now you can just tell me to fuck off if you think it's too much. She's like, okay. I'm like, Brian Lilly in a gag ball with a female hand holding his hair saying, Brian, you'll write what we tell you to write. Yeah. <laughs> she's yeah. like, she's like, I love it. And then it happened. Oh. Yeah, it's the greatest. That that cartoon has way better hair than that loser. Um, Yeah, I know, I know. That guy has like that guy. His hair looks like if Conan O'Brien became a meth head. If Conan O'Brien fucking had a rough five years, it became me. That's what his hair looks like. (laughs) It's actually the Conan O'Brien toupee. It's not even hair. (laughs) It's it's, it's something like that. Um. Anyway, so uh, we got. I love getting sidetracked with Christy Blatcher. I miss her so much. Um. You know, uh, I miss rest in peace. one of the last like bastions of honest journalism in this country. Like I know. And so many people thought she was a fucking Nazi and all that shit. And it was just like, oh my God, like idiots. 
Yeah, she had she had views that you might not agree with uh, on, especially when it came to indigenous issues and stuff like that. Yeah. But she, it's not like she hated indigenous people. It's just that she she was so principled to evidence and principled to um, being able to ascertain evidence and come up with an idea as to you know where it was pointing to, and you know she would defend people if they were wrongly accused of something, whether that was cops. Or someone on the left, and she yeah. often defended people on the left, and they just ignored it so that they could call her a Nazi the next time she was critical about something else, right? It was yeah. Just- yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, which is an easy cop out when you're not actually analyzing what somebody has to say. That's right. That's right. Um, so anyway, so we are going to continue heinous cases. We are going to take Christy Blatchford's book and we're going to do most of the cases from that uh, from that book. And that will be each episode. So I can't wait to do that. Two seconds to see if I did well here. Um, uh, you didn't. You cut me off too many times. The whole lighting thing. The fact oh, that you turned off. off your camera. <laughs> no, you're, you you did fine. I, I liked it. I liked it. Um, I, I like ending a podcast on, on a lighter note like that anyway. So I'm, I'm so happy that you're here. Um, we're gonna probably Thanks aim for, for next. Everybody. Thanks for. I listening. think we're gonna aim for next week, uh, for these cases. But we'll get back to everybody on that. Um, and so, Rob, uh, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll hear from you in a couple minutes, and I'll tell you how horrible you did on the podcast. The first of the six part Paul Bernardo heinous cases. Uh, yes. we did, we did Carla Homolka. Sort of. That one. That's we like were a- disorgan. We were disorganized. I think yeah, a little bit for you that were, one. You were. I was fine. Yeah. Yeah. Me. Yeah. The guy that. Yeah, forget it. Never mind. Um, All right. Take care. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk soon, buddy. Thanks, man. <clears throat> Rob Kivlikin. I was saying Kivlikian or Kivikalian or something for like months and months. Um, thank you, Rob, for joining us. Thank you again to Ann Schwartz as well. I don't even know what my next show is right now yet. Um, I'll probably want to throw something on Thanksgiving just to be contrarian. Um, so I hope you guys tune into whatever that will be. And now what I'm going to do is say goodbye to Leanne and Jen and Kathleen. I feel like the romper room lady. I see, I see Jen and Kathleen. And you have the mirror. Remember the mirror? And DaCosta. And I see you. That was a really creepy part of romper room because it was like, how the fuck does she see me? And there's no fucking glass in that mirror, bitch. What's going on? I can't remember what that woman's name was. Anyways, um, Polka Dot Door, though. That was the song. Uh, Romper Room was part of Polka Dot Door. Isn't that how it worked? Something like that. Anyways, I appreciate everybody being here. Thanks again to Annie Schwartz. And thank you to Rob Kiblikin. And we will see you next time on Black Ball. Black Ball. Black, black, black ball. Black, 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 black ball. do did will the story of people podcast is now available on the crier media network the first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories ready tara sloan from the san jose sharks undercurrent podcast at nbc sports marianne iveson from iveson voice and the let's take this outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land 
Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast. Heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.